I will not vote for this bill as it is today. It's a shell of a bill right now. We all know that. That, of course, was Arizona Senator John McCain speaking last night on the Senate floor about why he would not vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act without an acceptable replacement. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. The Senate, of course, failed last night to do what uh, Republicans have been threatening to do for six or seven years, talking about how they would rather have another system than the Affordable Care Act. And now that they have uh, both houses of Congress and the White House, they seemed poised to do that. Last night, they came up short, came up short in votes in the Senate to be able to do that. We're going to start this day talking about what happened in the Senate last night. And it is Friday, which we call opposite day around here. It's when we invite somebody in who sits on across the political spectrum from me, somebody who sees things a little differently to help me wrap up the week's news. And playing that role this week is Senator Phil Pavlo, Republican state senator from St. Clair. He's been in that chair before. Let's start with what happened last night in in Congress. How, How surprised were you that the Senate was unable to do what the House was able to do, which was to put together an alternative to the Affordable Care Act? It's an alternative that I thought was unacceptable, but it was an alternative, the Senate couldn't get there. They couldn't figure out a way to get 50 votes uh, for for the alternative that looked a lot like what the House did. Are you shocked that we're at this point? No, I'm not, unfortunately. You know, it's taken us eight or nine years to get to this point. And, you know, what we saw displayed last night and the weeks prior in the House and the Senate and the whole argument back and forth is it's a clear indication that Knowing how to be able to do something is very different than being able to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, the way that this is playing out, um, I don't know if they're just waiting for a outright collapse of Obamacare uh, statewide, but I think, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, these senators have to go back and look their constituents in the face during the summer break and say, look, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is our plan. And unfortunately, they can't get over the fact that, uh, you know, that they haven't been able to accomplish it. Yeah. And the pressure is amazing on both sides of this question. So so if if what reaction do you think the senators will get? What will they will people thank them for not pushing us off the cliff that that this bill represented? I mean, John McCain talking about it being a shell of a bill. Uh, Murkowski and Collins had sharper criticisms of of the bill. Do you feel like people thought this was a better alternative or or that, hey, look, we need to go back to the drawing board, think about this a little more, come up with a more comprehensive change to the system, one that doesn't put so many people at risk? Well, two things. First of all, the Republicans who really essentially gained the majority not only in the House beginning in 2010 – but in the Senate now with the president being there are going to have some explaining to do back to their constituents because I assure you there wasn't one of them uh, that talked about keeping Obamacare. Sure. So uh, I think what they're feeling right now is this this um, a massive amount of pressure because they they just don't know how to get to where they need to go. And I don't know if there's going to be an invisible hand that's going to work here. Um, the unfortunate part about it is, is that, like I said, they talked to their constituents for years to get that job. And sometimes I feel like now maybe keeping the job is more important than doing the job. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, what did you what did you make of the bill itself and the, the replacement? Was this what you thought would improve health care? Think, think about people in your district, for instance. Uh, would this have been better for them than what we have now? Well, I think the some of the elements that I really dialed into was this idea, uh, particularly on the Medicaid expansion, to start delivering those responsibilities and that money back to the states to allow us to be able to form the kind of Medicaid uh, system that we need to ensure our residents. Uh, if you looked at any of our budget work that we've done, we put a um, we, we put a, um, a pilot program for direct primary care. It's another more creative way, more efficient way to deliver those kind of services that offer um, a substantial cost savings, um, sometimes up to 20%. Uh, we are able to provide better health care versus just the straight coverage. I think some of the elements that will probably happen with Obamacare, you will see the individual mandate go away. And I think you'll end up seeing the massive amount of taxes that are there to support it will probably disappear. And that will essentially uh, allow the states uh, to become creative. And I think one of the big pieces missing here, and while it is partisan, the Democrats aren't that interested in negotiating. I mean, I, I think that they're uh, probably taking some joy in the fact that the Republicans weren't able to succeed on this last well, it's night. Well, it's a political victory. If it's you're a, a it's a huge political victory, and I think that you know fundraising emails will be going out today. Um, you know, driving out their side of the conversation, but at some point they're going to have to get to the room and work. Where I do hold out hope is that you know the Senate is a more deliberative body, and I hope that you know to listen to Senator McCain talk about running this thing through the full committee process and engaging the opposition party in this case on the solutions. Because ultimately, whether it's a year from now or 18 months or 24 months, uh, we are going to be in serious problem. We are there in Michigan right now. When we looked at Medicaid expansion, we thought we would get 400,000 enrollees in the <laughs> first seven, year, right? in the first three years. And we're, we're pushing 700,000. And when the federal money starts to dry up and it becomes a state's responsibility, uh, we're really going to have to get creative in a hurry. Yeah. So, so what would you do if, if let's say this all stays in place, the Medicaid expansion stays in place? How would you propose to come up with the money to pay for three hundred thousand more people than we had planned under under the Medicaid expansion? Or would you, or would you rather? Think of something else. Well, we need to think of something else. In Michigan, we have 2.4 million people on Medicaid in our state right now. And it's the biggest line item in our budget at almost 17 or $18 billion. And so if we don't start getting out in front of not only the fact that the federal money is going to start to uh, diminish, uh, you know, the governor and our legislative bodies across the country need to be pressing Congress. I mean, they're on full display right now of not being able to accomplish a whole lot. Uh, maybe we ought to be asking for those responsibilities to be able to manage those programs in our own state. Yeah. I was with some legislators from Tennessee and Arizona over the last couple of weeks, and um, you know Tennessee has taken a very aggressive approach to how they're delivering their system. We have the ability here; we have the healthcare system. Uh, we just have to apply some imagination to it. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Phil Pavlos, state senator from St. Clair. He is here helping me wrap up 
the week's news. Each Friday, we try to invite somebody in who sees the world a little differently than I do, maybe sits across the political spectrum from me. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, talk about what we saw last night in Washington, the Senate failing to adopt the replacement and repeal bill for the Affordable Care Act. What do you think about that? What did you think about the bill that was on the table? What do you think about the way Republicans have handled this issue for the last six or seven years, uh, now getting to the point where they could do something and failing? Do you feel like uh, the ideas that are on the table are the ones we ought to be talking about? Or are there other things that should be in the mix? 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work your comments into the conversation. Tell us what you think about healthcare, healthcare reform, the ideas that are out there. What do you think about the idea of Democrats and Republicans maybe working together to come up with uh, an alternative to the Affordable Care Act, something we have not seen? Uh, the Affordable Care Act, of course, was crafted, crafted entirely by Democrats because Republicans refused to take part in the process. This time, Republicans were in charge and Democrats sat it out. Maybe we ought to try it a little differently, have uh, a group of maybe middle-of-the-road uh, folks from, from both parties sit down and hash this out. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Joanne in Plymouth, welcome to Detroit uh, Today. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah. I think it's a big joke that they keep talking about this, you know, eight years, then the promise, the promise, the promise. Because a lot of people have certainly changed over eight years. People don't stay stagnant all the time. So they need to drop that promise argument that they're making. So I'm so glad that three um, you know, senators stepped up. And I think that John McCain is a good conscience for the nation and for the Senate. I think everybody should work together. And I think a lot of people do. So maybe Mitch McConnell will take a back seat and the president and you know, people will start working together because, first of all, I think they, everybody, there should be Medicare for all. But besides that, I'm so glad that it didn't pass because it would have hurt so many people. And, you know, I agree that everybody should have good health care. So hopefully they can work things out as a group and it will work out finally well. So yeah. hopefully we can, you know, keep on that. And all my friends that I've got to make phone calls to all these folks, I guess it's working because you call these numbers and their lines are busy. You have to wait and call again. <laughs> Yeah. So I think all this um, pressure that we're putting on them is really helping a lot. And jo that promise thing is a joke. Joanne there in Plymouth, remind me of who who represents you in Congress. Um, well, um, Trott is, is our representative, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's certainly not on our side. But yeah. certainly, um, you know, um, you know Debbie Stabenow and uh, Peters are great. And then, um, you know, but Trot we're trying to do something about him because he doesn't agree with any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Joanne, I actually had a really interesting conversation with uh, Congressman Trot up on Mackinac Island about a month and a half ago. I, I agree with you that that we don't see things quite the same way, but but I did I did th find him a more thoughtful uh, legislator on this on this subject. I mean, he was somebody who had his own ideas about how things could work and wasn't just uh, opposed to the ideas that are in the Affordable Care Act. But uh, but I agree with you that, that he, you know, he, he certainly sits on the Republican or conservative side of things. But Joanne, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Kyle in Ann Arbor. Kyle, welcome to Detroit Today. You there, Kyle? Yep. 
Hey, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering about, um, you know, the individual mandate. You know, you have all this talk about how Obamacare is not really working. You have President Trump saying we're going to let Obamacare fail. But I feel like the linchpin of it is the individual mandate, which is not being enforced. So I don't really know, like, how the Republicans can really say Obamacare is not working when they're not, <laughs> when they're not enforcing, I think, I feel like the linchpin of the whole thing, which is right. like... That everybody has work. to be covered. Right. Yeah. And that young people like myself need to be paying into the system. You know, like, that's where the money that funds this thing comes from, is the people who are paying into it and not having a ton of claims right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, it just sort of seems like I, I don't understand how they can say it's not I, working. Kyle, I think that's when they're a, not even really enforcing it. Yeah, Kyle, I think that's a great question. Uh, Phil Pavlo, I'll give you a crack at that. If you remove the mandate... Uh, the, all of the all of the sort of economic thinking behind Obamacare goes away, as does the idea uh, of of universal coverage, right? Um, so, so talk about what you would do differently that would lower costs and also make sure that that people have access. Yeah, well, the previous caller, Joanne and Kyle, as well. I mean, I think sometimes we get confused between health care and healthcare coverage, and they're two very, very separate issues. And you know what Obamacare did is it removed risk. So if you're an insurer, you have to look at a broad spectrum of the population, and the population that has the higher risk uh, needs to be offset by people on the lower end of it paying a premium that don't access care. You know, in your life, you access the majority of your healthcare in the last three years of your life. And, you know, you can't outrun that fact. Demographics are destiny when it comes to health care or anything else. And so if we don't build up a system that has choice and that allows, um, you know, people to join a system at the level of pay that they can get, uh, you know, I mentioned the direct primary care issue, um, you know, having direct contact with your doctor is key. I mean, that's one of the key tenets. But, you know, never in this country's history have we ever mandated anybody to have to do something. But what we found out is by mandating people to have insurance on the lower end, if they don't get it, it's a $2,500 fee. Well, imagine a system if you could get someone there insured and, 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 and be in there at a cost point of seven or $8,000, uh, and then the higher end of it also to be able to offset it. When we give coverage, you remove the risk. And so that's why there are no, that's why the insurers are dropping out of this market at record speed, because they're now talking about coverage and they don't have a way of assessing risk. And and that's going to be the downfall of the 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 mandate. So so, but if you go back to a system where people get to choose what they want to do and have absolutely no requirements, a lot of people will just choose not to have insurance, won't they? Well, in some of the care that people, some of the insurance coverages that people have today, they the deductibles are so high. You know, I have a family member who has an eighteen thousand dollar bill to pay before any of his health care kicks in. And so that in itself is a barrier to it. You know, you have to go and talk to the families and the people in my district who are dealing with skyrocketing annual premiums. Not only is it a massive pressure on the family just to be able to make that commitment every month, um, the, the premiums are so high. I had a, a farmer up in the thumb, you know, who was carrying around kidney stones for 18 months because he hasn't been able to meet his deductible to get his insurance. Wow. And and so is that really the kind of coverage that makes right. sense? It isn't. And, you know, you think about having a kidney stone 
you know, knocking around for 18 months. What kind of damage is that doing? What kind of risk is that guy in there, even though he has, you know, a high deductible plan that he can't access? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kyle in Ann Arbor, thanks very much for the call and for the question. Jonathan in Southfield, you're up next on Detroit Today. You there, Jonathan? Oh, yes, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Go ahead. So, um, I guess my kind of take on Hillary, just because I saw her as the lesser of two evils, but you know, politically, most voters fall in the middle, right? You may lean left or right, but very few of the majority are staunch, you know, left-wing liberals or staunch right-wing conservatives. We all kind of lean towards one end of the spectrum based on the issue. Sure. And one thing that I think we've seen in this healthcare issue is. I think it's becoming more so about, like, perpetuating Obama's legacy of the Affordable Care Act and keeping that part of his his legacy alive for Democrats. And then Republicans and the Trump administration are trying to push his new bill and what they're trying to get because they see it as a way to increase Trump's legacy. And to me, that's just detrimental to the millions of Americans who just want a quality health care system. Yeah, no. We can get affordable care and it's like there's you know if you go back to the founding fathers principal belief system they hated a party system like george washington and alexander hamilton and these men who drafted all of our ideas and beliefs and and founded our country were wholeheartedly against a party system and if they saw what it had become today where there's an unwillingness to even you know, come to the table and discuss something just because it's labeled a Democratic piece of legislation or a Republican. Or the Republican one, yeah. Jonathan, um, that's that's. I, I think that's a really great observation. It does become about personalities. It does become about politics and not the issue. And that's sort of where we are. That's where we've been, frankly, uh, on this issue at least for the past seven or eight years. I mean, uh, like I said, when, when we were debating the Affordable Care Act, Republicans were playing the same role that Democrats are playing now. And then, of course, they've also uh, badly um, misconstrued what happened seven years ago, saying that somehow the ACA was rammed through, even though there were months and months of hearings. Uh, if you'll recall, uh, the president himself went over to Congress and sat with the leadership uh, in a public forum where they were talking about ideas about uh, health care. I mean, it was a belabored process to come up with that bill. Republicans, in the end, just didn't feel like they could support it. Uh, and, and I think that ends up being uh, part of the problem. Uh, Phil, what, what do you think about the idea of Democrats and Republicans being able to come up with something they might do together on this. Here in Michigan, when the Affordable Care Act passed, we had Democrats and Republicans work together to come up with the Medicaid uh, expansion that that we undertook. Republicans were in control of both the governorship and the legislature at that time, but they got a lot of Democratic votes for that system. How come we can't see that in Washington? Well, um, I think it's because it's so polarized. And what happens is we transfer this whole health care debate to a handful of people, Obama, Trump, McConnell, McCain. Um, and really, we're taking our eye off of the people who are left to deal with the wreckage of the health care system that's there today. And when I say wreckage, I talk about the financial piece of it. Uh, my phone rings daily. 
uh, people challenge. And, and it did before we had Medicaid expansion. Uh, but what was different before Obamacare came in is that, you know, we managed that population. Um, you know, w- Michigan stepped up and made sure that all kids had access to health care. But, you know, I'll give you a little example. When I was in business, I had an employee that just wasn't interested in health care. Uh, he was young, he was bulletproof, and he never really needed it. But after five or six years with me, he, he approached me and said, hey, what, what can you do? Can you provide health care for me? And this is in the late 90s. And I said, well, you know, I really don't, I can provide part of it. And he said, well, what if I got my wife's employer who worked at a restaurant in Macomb County, and him and I sat together, we split the premium, and we offered this family the kind of health care that they, that they required. And when you take any options like that off of the table and you're just, you know, you're mandated to be able to have to provide that coverage. But years ago, I mean, your health care benefits came as a result of the employment. Your employment, sure. And so we've taken small market right out of the right out of the picture where small businesses like myself couldn't access the health care at that point. We had to get creative and come up with a solution. And a top down federal, you know, dictate in terms of what you're supposed to require is going to fail and it's going to fail it's going to fail because these are individuals on the other end of that policy and they all have their own challenges they all have Everyone's their own got different uh, issues to different do. issues and the pre-existing condition and and, and I, I just think that when we when we transfer this entire conversation to the people at the top of the food chain in Washington at the cost of the people that are struggling to provide this service for their family, there has to be. There's a huge chasm between uh, those two subsets of people where uh, where a solution can come. And you know, when Michigan did the Medicaid expansion, uh, you know, we applied for specific waivers from the federal government to say if this doesn't work out, this is repealed. Yeah. Uh, those waivers were um, they were accepted, and. You know, and that's a local solution. And you can look your state representative or your state senator in the eye and meet him at his coffee hours and explain that issue to them. And and they'll understand and they're more able to react. And and that's why I think, you know, across the country, people are so, you know, dissatisfied with the work that Congress does. And, you know, being a local elected official, you know, I know where my approval rating is. I mean, it's in the (laughs) low teens probably, and that's on a good day. But the problem is, is that, you know, the federal government has taken over so many sections of our life. We ought to be getting our governors together across the country and demanding the federal government give us those uh, those powers and the money that comes with them to shape our system that can address what we need to deal with at a local level. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Kyle in Shelby Township. Kyle, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Kyle. So um, my thought is, you know, to allow everyone to go on to Medicare. And, you know, currently with Medicare, you have a baseline plan, and then people can buy private supplemental insurance coverage. My, my father's on it and, it, and it's great. He can shop around, there's lots of choice, but he has that baseline coverage. And then fund that with a combination of some type of national sales tax or national value added tax and a payroll tax. Yeah, and then I, I think something else that might be important is to require providers to state their prices for their services in the easiest possible way, so consumers are empowered to shop around for procedures and uh, for different procedures that have to be done. Yeah, Kyle, I, uh, thanks for the call and uh, and the suggestion. I think that's a really interesting idea. 
if you think about Medicare, in a lot of people's minds, I think Medicare and Medicaid get get lumped together a lot, right. and they think, well, it's all the same. There's real distinction between those two programs, though, and you never really hear old people who uh, who rely on Medicare for their for their coverage talking about wanting something else. I mean, they have a basic coverage that the government provides, and then they can go out and they can buy the things that they want to supplement that. Why Why shouldn't we have a system like that for Well, everybody? Medicare is supplemented by payroll taxes right now. So it every is, employer right. in the country is paying, you know, 3.9% into the Medicare. Uh, Medicare is designed for our senior population. And I mean, let's be real simple about it. Uh, senior citizens have that level of care because they participate in in large numbers in the elections of people. Yes. Uh, so, but when we talk about Medicaid, which is very different, that is a insurance policy for the low to moderate income folks across the country, and it's managed and passed through to the states. I think one of the issues that you have, and 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 we struggle with this with our doctors and our hospitals and our healthcare providers, is the fact that the Medicaid is such a superior uh, product in coverage. Essentially, they only reimburse at about 40 or 50% of what it really costs the hospital to do that. And what ends up happening is it creates a barrier to care because doctors and dentists, and they will decide not to take new Medicaid patients. And so when you have that, what good is that? What good is that coverage if it only reimburses at a percentage of the actual cost and doctors are, you know, leery about expanding their Medicaid patient population? But what if you put, what if you put the people, if you took all the, folks who are on Medicaid and gave them Medicare and put them in the same kind of system that senior citizens have, wouldn't that wouldn't that be an improvement? Oh, yeah, it absolutely would. Now you would be talking about a massive There's expansion a cost, of, right? of the cost across that. And, you know, it's just not it's not set up to be that. So I, I think it, we instead of going toward one system, we need to be able to develop many options and many fixes for the problem and not put them all into one because then you start – uh, down the road and, and immediately uh, moving into a single-payer system. And the single-payer system, I think, would be devastating to not only healthcare in the country, but to the cost containment. Uh, until you can introduce competition, whether that competition is among you know, a handful of, of providers in your state or uh, being able to link up with uh, other providers across state lines, you know, un- until you reintroduce competition, uh, there's no cost containment at the top. Thereby, you see premiums rising from 25 to 116% annually, and these providers are dropping out of the market because they can't compete. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, Senator, I want to get your reaction to two things uh, that happened in Washington this week. One is the president's dust-up with uh, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general. Uh, I know I know of your feelings about the president, uh, uh, but, but I'm curious what you thought about, you know, basically taking out your your attorney general at the knees. But then I want to also get your reaction to the new communications director at the White House and his unbelievable tirade yesterday uh, with a New Yorker uh, writer. Uh, what What is going on in your party? Well, Senator? I'll start with the, <laughs> um, the attorney general and we start talking about, you know, quality people. Jeff Sessions is at the top of almost everybody's list. And you know, for the president to pick a fight, obviously an unnecessary fight, uh, with someone who has, you know, the, the conservative credentials uh, and is recognized as being just a great public servant, I don't really understand the rationale there. And I hope that this is probably the last time we talk about that particular issue. 
because there is <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done in the Department of Justice. And, you know, I mean, historically, um, you know, there's always been rifts between the president and the attorney general. They sure. have two very different roles. But, you know, Jeff Sessions was one of Donald Trump's early supporters. And when he came on um, in a very conservative you know, state like Alabama, things really started to happen for President Trump. So it's a fight he doesn't need. But, you know, and I, it's switching gears to the mooch, as he refers to himself, um, I saw his very first press conference. And the minute that he took that podium, I just knew here was a guy that had a <laughs> white hot desire for attention. And he went on to, you know, he started his press conference by saying he wasn't going to take any questions. And then an hour later, after about 25 questions, this is the guy I believe that is very self-centered. I really don't understand, um, you know, his role. Uh, I think it's outsized in his mind. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that I mean, it it's just somebody who clearly wants to be chief of staff rather than communications director, which is problematic in and of, in and of itself. But even in that role, you couldn't do the things that he's already doing. Forty-eight no. hours into the job, right? Yeah, and and I think it's puzzling. I think I, you know, along with many of your listeners, read the reports of the article that he was in when he called the reporter two nights ago, <laughs> and the vulgarity in there. There's no place for that. Um, it, but but this idea that he's going to be the disruptor, maybe that's what Trump ultimately wanted to have happen. But um, I don't think that it does anybody any service. I think it's a massive destruction from the issues. Um, if the communication directors come in and get Trump's agenda back on track, uh, you know, to be able to start a serious conversation on tax reform, um, you know, health care is, you know, it, that's playing out. Uh, you know, we have so many more important issues to be dealing with than to have this massive distraction. But Sometimes in the back of my mind, I believe that some of these distractions are intentional. <laughs> some um, of them are, I think. Some of them are, but uh, you know, I think that they can play that a little smarter. Yeah. Well, it would be one thing if you had these distractions, and meanwhile the president was steadily getting things done in the background. I don't see any evidence that that's so. It seems like the distractions are the work in the White House and that he's unable to get traction with the things that he actually wants to do. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Trump has put together um, a pretty decent team across the board and, and going back to, yeah, we you can know, the attorney general talk for an hour about how I don't <laughs> think that's so. <laughs> well, Jeff Sessions, I know is going to work every day and trying to clean things up in the, in the department and, you know, Mattis at the defense department, these guys have very serious jobs yeah, and do. people rely on um, that strong leadership and, uh, you know, it's disappointing to see the public face of the Trump administration play out like it does. I think a lot of it is unnecessary. Um, but, you know, I just hope that the real work is going on behind the scenes and, you know, because a lot of people so. are, re are, are relying gotta, on this. <laughs> they got to get their act together at some point. All right. State Senator Phil Pavlo of St. Clair. As always, thanks for being here on Detroit Today. I always enjoy it, Stephen. We'll Thank you for the soon. opportunity. Yeah. All right, up next, we're going to talk about the social impact of huge sports wins, and we're going to focus on the one that means the most here in Detroit, the 1968 World Series win for the Detroit Tigers. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.